I'm always a little bit grieved when I hit the end of a book study and recognize that all the things I know about 1 John are not going to be valuable week to week anymore. Uh, all the w- things I knew about 1 Peter are not valuable week to week anymore. But in some sense, they are. I mean, there, there's this enduring permanency of those things that we learn because the more we learn about God, the more control He is of our lives. We find ourselves living more and more in tune with the way the Spirit would have us to live instead of just kind of going from wise decision to wise decision to good decision to avoiding bad decisions and making uh, bad choices. Now, unless you've been woefully ignorant of, of the signs and kind of the way we've described First John, we have described it in terms of three words, abide, sin, and love. And really, I hope that what you come to is this understanding that in some sense today for you might be a waste of time as we seek to summarize and, and apply and seek to discover what does the forest look like? I know a lot about the individual trees, but what does the, the forest of 1 John look like? And this idea of in what way do abiding and in what way does sin and in what way does love, what's the interrelated connectedness to these three and and what in the world does it mean for me and for my life and what does it mean for us and for this community of saints and sinners collectively gathered here today? Well, John gives us in some sense, I think, uh, a summation or at least the overwhelming what he believes to be the the kind of the summary statement or the, the importance of his work of this letter, and we find that in 1 John 5, 13, and we covered this last week, but let me just read it again. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. See, the overwhelming testimony of what John sought to communicate to this group of Christians is that there is the possibility for certainty in their Christian walk. There is the ability to know you rest in him. But as we're striving and and, and really wanting to come to this conclusion, there are at least two factors competing for our allegiance, two factors competing for our heart's affections. And on the one hand, we find sin. And sin is just kind of this this all-encompassing thing. Anything that seeks to distract our heart from pursuing him can rightly be described and understood as sin. And so sin is calling for us, and it's It it wants us to delight in it, and it wants us to find our identity in it. On the other hand, we see that there is this call towards love. Not just this idea that we need to be more loving, we need to extend our love to those around us, but in a very real sense, the greatest need that many and most of us have is to have received God's love and to dwell in his love richly and to dwell in his love moment by moment, not Sunday by Sunday, not from salvation to baptism to periodic and episodic mission trip or, or revival in our own hearts, but that we would be so preoccupied with our pursuit and understanding of having received God's love and dwelling in God's love that we would rest permanently in him. And so John has been kind of working in us and showing us that on the one hand we have sin, and on the other hand we have love, and we can choose to identify in one or the other. But on the basis of what we find ourselves identifying in, we will find the security of his provision being met out in our abiding or our struggling to abide. You see what I'm saying? The more you struggle with finding your identity in who you were and your struggles right now, you're going to consistently really have a very difficult time trusting and abiding in God's goodness. But on the other hand, if you look at his love and you recognize his love is poured out on you, that you have received his love and you rest in that affection 
from a right and holy God. You'll find yourself naturally resting in the security of his embrace and abiding. So John writes, he says that we can know, but we recognize sin is a real problem. And this is why John began this way in chapter 1. Flip to chapter 1, let's read verses 5 through 10 together. John writes, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But conversely, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the first thing we need to recognize about sin is sin is absolutely real and God is absolutely holy. When we come into verse 5, we have this understanding that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So John has this statement that God is absolute perfection, that he is moral perfection, that he is holy and upright. And from this understanding of kind of the character and the nature of God, we are immediately confronted with the reality of sin. You see, John was writing in the midst of a community that said sin's not such a big deal, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't really affect us. And he came in and he said, you have to understand this. If you don't understand the the egregious nature of sin, if you don't understand how incredibly devastating sin is, then neither can you have a relationship with God. You see, we we will recognize that that sin in an interpersonal relationship, so if I sin against my wife, if she sins against me, we're going to have a hard time having a good and healthy relationship, aren't we? And so if she's mad at me over some stupid thing that I've done, then then maybe I get the silent treatment. If I'm mad at her over some stupid or thoughtless thing that she's done, and and I've got to be honest with you, the likelihood of that being true is highly unlikely. But if this is the way we go and some sin has crept into our relationship, then there is an obstacle, then there is an impediment to this right relationship, to this bonding between husband and wife. If you, in your understanding of sin, say sin's not such a big deal, God's really a pretty good guy, all these things are covered in salvation, and I can just go on and do whatever the heck I want to do day in and day out, and and, and he pays it, no, never mind then what you would have understood and what you would have realized within the responsibility of your relationship to him and the intimacy of your relationship one to another is that there is a fracture. There is an issue. There is something between you and God, and John describes this thing as sin. Sin is devastating, and it is opposed to God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no none at all. So we recognize that that sin competes for our affections, that it invites us in and and to enjoy it, to bury ourselves in it, and to find our identity in what sin is. And so by virtue of understanding this thing, John comes to us and he says, well, I've told these people there's an issue. I need to provide for them a way of understanding and a way for escape. And what is this? Does God come to us and say, Justin, you're you're a horrid mess. Shannon, she's got her life together. And so what you need to do is be more like her and less like you. No, he doesn't say that. Does he come in and say, what you need to do is just put yourself together and find somebody who's perfect and to emulate them? No, that's not what he's saying. What he says is you need to handle the issue of sin. And he addresses this in verse 7 and verse 9. Look what he says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. How? It says, because the blood of Jesus cleanses us 
It cleanses us from all sin. You see, it's the blood of Jesus poured out which can make the sinner, can make you, can make me right with God. Because God is holy, because he is morally perfect, because he is high and exalted, he can have no affiliation, he can have no relationship with sin. And so we recognize that God sent his son Jesus to be complete and utter moral perfection, to die in our place, to receive the wrath, the punishment, and the penalty of God for sin, for our sin, Jesus received that. And his blood came out, and inasmuch as we believe in Jesus, a Jesus who received our penalty and punishment for sin and died, a Jesus who came to live again, and a Jesus who sits high and exalted at the right hand of God, we can be cleansed from the sting and stain of sin. So he's not describing moral, superior, moral superiority. He's not describing some 6, 12, 15, 13 and a half or some period of living in a desert and walking out and saying, that's okay, I haven't sinned in a while. Well, of course you haven't, you idiot. You've not been around anyone. We recognize that to be sinless is to ascribe Christ's holiness to us and in our lives in no other way. So he gets in verse 9 and he says, what about the Christian who finds themselves repeatedly walking in sin? What about after you come to know Jesus, since we recognize that in salvation his blood cleanses us from all sin, but what then am I to do in the midst of finding myself engaged in sin? So I look at stuff I'm not supposed to. I yell at people. I I let my anger just kind of run course and run roughshod over people. My pride puffs up in me and makes me begin to identify my sin instead of his love. You get into verse 9 and he says this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me explain something to you. Maybe this has been lost on some of you. God is not surprised when we come to him in confession. Occasionally, our kids will come in and tell us stuff, and we're like, that's how that got broken. I always just always just assumed it was an earthquake from Oklahoma that came down that put the scratch on the side of mom's car. But now I know it's your bicycle when you're driving it out and go, oh, that's not such a, let me just lean into it and finish out that scratch, right? Some of us have this understanding that when we go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm just a hapless idiot and you know I did this thing wrong, that he would look at us and say, are you kidding me? I thought the whole time you had this all figured out. And then you come to me with this confession, I'm so surprised. But we have this real understanding that God absolutely knows the inmost, deepest, darkest desire of your heart. That God absolutely knows and he observes absolutely everything you're doing at all times of the day. And so this God catches you in the midst of sin and rebellion. He recognizes the thing that you've done, this violation of his holy will, and he is waiting on your confession. In essence, when you come to God and say, God, I've done this thing, he says, yes, I already know, and the forgiveness was waiting on you this whole time. Many of us keep ourselves from having received the forgiveness of God on the basis of our refusal to utter and walk in, refusal to utter confession and walk in forgiveness. Why? It's an illustration that in some sense, sin is easier to walk in than it is to walk in having received his love calls us to confess our sins, in essence, to agree with what he has observed is true in us and to rest in the reliance and dependence upon his love for us. You see, there's this understanding that sin is not who we are, but it devastatingly wants us to be. Our identity is not found in sin, but sin so desperately wants us to find our identity in it. It wants us to rest in it. 
I was kind of really struck this week in this understanding of why in the world are we such a negatively focused people, or maybe why in the world am I such a negatively focused person? And it's always comforting in some sense for me when I'm able to find some study that validates inadequacy in myself. I'm like, yes, there are other people like me. Amen, hallelujah. Right? Nobody? Nobody? Okay. Anyway, so I'm, I'm reading these couple of studies. Uh, one was a psychological study, and another one was an article written in the New York, uh, New York Times. And so they go on to talk about why people are so negative. And, and, and lo and behold, this is the way we're wired. This is the way we're made. And so one of the things, and this is kind of anecdotally, it said that there are twice as many words for expressing negative emotion found in the English dictionary than there are words for expressing positive emotion or having received positive things. So we begin to recognize that, in in one sense, even our language is set up to express negativity. I don't know if this should tell us that maybe Webster was a pessimist, and he's like, anger, hate, greed, what more you got for me, laddie? Right? That's probably how he wrote, and that's why he wrote a dictionary, so people think he was smart. And so we get into this, and there's this understanding that all of this negativity, one of the things that the researchers said is that, in some sense, our brains are hardwired to automatically transfer negative interactions to our long-term memory, whereas a positive interaction takes us a full 12 seconds of consciously meditating on this positive thing for it to make this transfer from short to long-term memory. And so we begin to understand that a one-off encounter where Carolyn comes in and kicks me in the shin, I'm going to focus on that and not the five years prior of her bringing me cookies, Right? It's because this one incidence of negative interaction with her becomes so incredibly powerful, becomes so incredibly powerful. One of the things they said is it takes five to ten positive interactions to overcome one negative interaction. One researcher describing the way that the the humankind responds and acts according to negativity and positivity, he said our brains are like Velcro when it comes to negative things. And our brains are like Teflon when it comes to positive things, and they just slip right off. And sin has this same ability in our hearts. We recognize in some sense this notional idea that we are saved, that we are redeemed, but in the midst of all these things, the enemy is this powerful force coming over and again, reminding you of your failures. Reminding you, oh man, just last week you were in the midst of doing this sin. Just yesterday, you were in the midst of doing that sin. You should really not pray to God and ask him for forgiveness until you have a really good hold on this sin, until you're really ready to release it and to walk in forgiveness. That's, that's really what you should do. The enemy comes in and catches us in the midst of this and reminds us of what a hapless screw-up that we are over and over and over again. Why? Because in the midst of recognizing of what we are entrapped in our sin, he makes us ineffective for the kingdom. If you find your identity in sin instead of the forgiveness of God, he is rendering you ineffective. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2. If you want to turn over there just a little bit to the left. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2. Look at this. Starting in verse 8. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This stunning word that none of us have been saved because God looked at us and said, you know, ultimately if Jesse would just quit sinning and and be a halfway decent guy, I think I could do something with him. If if Matt would quit being such a hapless screw-up and a nitwit and and really think about what he says before it comes out of his mouth, I, I may be able to do something with this. 
You see, we step into Ephesians 2 and verse 8, and it says it's grace, it's the riches of God poured out on us, not because we're such a, a work in progress, not because there's so much potential, but because he is so amazing. He says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now look at verse 10. We are his workmanship. You, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your striving, are God's workmanship. God has made you to be this beacon of light. He has made you to be this vessel that testifies to his goodness in you. And so when sin seeks to pop up and say, no, remember me, you love me, you walk in me, we say, no, I am his workmanship. God's grace is building you into be something. And look what it says. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. God didn't create us to be people who consistently wallow in the self-pity of past sins and current struggles. God has created us to be those who walk in the reality of what he has now made us, and in the midst of this, we are walking out the work of grace in our lives, not testifying to people that we got all this worked out and we got all this locked up, but testifying to people that I'm only able ever to take each step, to make each stumbling, you know, bumbling walk according to the grace and liberty of my God who has declared me free, who has declared me innocent, and through the shed blood of Christ who declares me to be righteous. Sin cannot be our focus. We don't overcome sin by seeking to avoid it. We overcome sin by focusing on God and his love and his righteousness for us. So when we begin to understand his love, we recognize God's love according to John we, we know love in some sense, according to John, by this focus on 1 John 3.16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we also ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Man, there are a variety of ways that we recognize love. Every February, our culture and society bends over backwards to describe various ways of love. Uh, Facebook and Instagram has created this whole culture of kind of love shaming where we have to have the most bold profession of love for our spouse or he or she comes in and says, did you see what Bobby did this week for his wife? You're like, nah, I unfriended that guy last year when he pulled that same stunt. And so it's just this whole idea that it's this bigger and better display of love. But what John gives us in this understanding is that we have zero idea understanding of love. We may understand a lot about romance. Well, that's to be questioned. But what John tells us is that there is no understanding of love outside of recognizing the sacrifice of the son on our part. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It's this stunning display of love that calls us to recognize, in some sense, the overwhelmingness of it all. And so we recognize that Jesus laid down his life for us, and immediately when we're confronted with that, what it should resonate in our hearts is, I don't deserve it. And God says, absolutely you don't. Absolutely you don't. See, if we have this understanding that we deserve God's love, that he was somehow doing himself or us a favor in allowing his son to die for us, then we look at his, his love and his sacrificial gift and say, that's okay, that's pretty amazing, but I can take it or leave it. But in essence, we come into this lavish display that the son of God did not spare his life, that the son of God gave his life. His life was extinguished. His life was sacrificed. He became a once and for all sacrifice for you and for me that we might have a relationship and, and a right relationship at that with God. 
And so we look at this and we say, well, okay, well, and so I've got this great model of love and I'm told that on the basis of this then I'm to go out and to love everybody else around me and that seems pretty difficult. But, but we're tempted to believe once again that, that maybe there was something good in us, maybe there was something redeemable in us and, and then it's on the basis of our own initiative whereby we love and God comes and he smacks us in the face. Once again, he says, you still don't get it. So John writes and he offers us this word in 1 John 4.10. He says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. It's God's bold initiation of love to us. It's this bold, amazing initiation of love to us. And so John comes in, he says, look, not many of us love God. In fact, he says, it's not that we love God at all, but he loved us. How many people have ever been engaged in a relationship where you really felt like you did most of the work, but in some sense you did most of the work to get like five minutes of goodness for somebody else? You just raise your hand, man, that is, that is exhausting, right? That is absolutely exhausting and taxing when you're constantly pouring yourself out and your hope is that this person will give you five minutes of goodness and five minutes of reciprocating with the type of love that you want to receive. What God's talking about here isn't this. It's not this poor, pitiful idea that God was up there and he said, man, I just hope they give me five minutes of attention. I'm just gonna lay my son's life out before them. God recognized that not many would come to know him. The Bible tells us over and over again that few are those who will put their trust in Jesus. But yet still, the son's life was extinguished. His blood was poured out for the sins of all. We read in 1 John 2. So Jesus, his life there initiated, his love came out and visited upon many of whom would turn and say, I've got no desire, I have no need, I have no wants. I don't want to be close to you. I don't need to be close to you. This initiatory love of God should prompt our hearts to be wild, awed, and amazed. That his love doesn't find us cute, irresistible, and, and this, this kind of person who you want to get to know because you recognize something redeemable or good in them. He found us dead. He found us disinterested. He found us rebelling. He found us pursuing our own heart's desires. He found us doing anything other than doing something that would make us worthy of his redemption and he died anyway. This does not make you, in some sense, swoon on the basis of his love, then you do not understand it. God's initiatory love is not in response to something we've done, but it does prompt a response from us. John continues writing in 1 John 5, 3, he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and he tells us, he assures us, that his commandments are not burdensome, in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, he, he went on in this idea. So we have the idea that we're to keep his commandments. But he also says, if anyone loves or says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he tells us, he informs us that we are self-deceived, that we are a liar. And he says, for anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he can see does not love God whom he can't see. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we recognize on the basis of God's 
amazing sacrificial love displayed towards us, his initiatory love towards us, and our having received it, having believed on Jesus, confessed our sins, turned away from them, and living each day from him, he tells us that our response is to be two things. One, we obey his commandments, and two, that is most readily visited upon those around us by loving our brothers. You see, God's love hasn't come to you so that you might be sealed off in some type of hermetic container, never to be uh, encroached upon, never to be sullied. The easiest way in some sense for each of us to live a life that would be honoring to God, and I'm saying easiest, right? God communicates to you, you're lost in sin. You respond to his initiatory love. You confess back to him, God, I recognize I'm a sinner apart from you. You turn from that, you give your life to him, and then you go and you move far, far, far away from everybody else. Like this is in some sense the easiest way to, believer, to be a believer in faith in Jesus Christ. Very selfish, and that's a separate sin, and we can talk about that another week. But in some sense, this is the easiest way. Why? Put it plainly. People are terrible. People are terrible. Lost people are terrible. Christians are terrible. We're terrible to one another. We're terrible to ourselves. We're genuinely just terrible, awful, miserable people. And when we are this, we want those around us to know about it and to join us in it. This makes obeying his commandments and loving those around us decidedly difficult. It does. There are those of you who are sitting there with stony expressions on your faces. My only assumption is that you are spiritually constipated. This is the reason that you're having this issue. Maybe you begin to feel the spirit moving and this worries you because you've been constipated for so long. But this understanding comes in that what a right response to God on the basis of his initiatory love towards us is to obey his commandments, that we find ourselves wanting to live lives glorifying and honoring to God. This does not make him love you more, but this is the only right response to his love. Do you understand that that dichotomy, that, that difficulty there? We have the sense because of our relationships with one another that if I do more kind and wonderful things to my wife that she's more inclined to love me in the way that I desire to be loved, whatever the heck that is. But God does not work this way. We have received a full measure of his love. And having received a full measure of his love, we are walking in these baby steps of obedience towards him. So then comes the very nature of what that means to love those around us. Can I just tell you that one of the reasons I firmly believe that God gives us this command to love those around us is because he recognizes we are always going to be terrible at fulfilling this. Matt, what in the the world sense does that make? If we are really good at always loving those around us, and so if I go to Caleb, and and Caleb is just, as you know, a very difficult person to be around, and so is Ken Money, and I have, have both of them in a room, and they're both very terrible to be around, and I find myself excelling at loving both of them, and I don't need God's help in loving both of them, in some sense, I'd say, well, I've got this all settled up, and I have no need for the the grace of God in my life. But in some sense, in some sense, God gives us difficult people in our lives so that we have to rest on his grace and so that he gets the glory in the midst of our being able to offer trivial expressions of love that all fall pitifully short of his lavish display of love, and that being the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. 
So God calls us to walk in his commands and he calls us as well to love those around us. We're to love one another. You see, a focus on the love of God leads to abiding. 1 John 4, 16 through 18 says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Let me just stop there. Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? Or do you merely assume that his love is best visited upon somebody else, that God looks at you and he's woefully disappointed, he looks for you and he is just wanting you to get it, but you just can't. Scripture gives us this bold statement right here. We know and believe the love that he has for us. Like I don't know where many of you are in your lives. We are of a sufficient size that I'm unable to know each of your issues. Some of you are thinking, yes, I hope we never get smaller. But it's this great statement. God knows absolutely where you are. He knows where you are in this moment. He knows where you are in the moments before you walked into this church when you turned to your wife and you unleashed this, this horrid tirade towards her. He knows where you are. Students, right before you came in here, you're thinking these things about your parents. I can't believe they woke me up. I didn't want to come to church. He knows where each and every one of us are. And there's this sense when we focus on these things, we feel unworthy of his love. John writes, he says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. To know and to believe. Can I tell you that God's love for you is not something out there, but it's something that finds residence in your hearts. It's not something possible, but something real. It's not something illusory, but something real. It's not something far off, it's something near. We know and we believe. And in knowing, believing stems from this understanding because he goes on, he says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. Resting and trusting comes from a knowledge of who God is. Resting and trusting comes from having received and relying fully upon. We love first because he loved us. We love because he first loved us, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, and so we recognize this difficulty over and again. Our inability to walk in absolute, utter perfection. But John steps into the middle of this, and he told us in verse 18, says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. God is not waiting to bring retribution towards you. He's not waiting to punish you for the sin that you're currently engaged in. The engagement with this sin is punishment. You see, if you, if you set as the highest achievement in your life something other than having and knowing God and having an intimate relationship with him, then you won't see sin as a punishment. You'll see sin as something else. And you'll see punishment as this thing that comes prior to your union with God. You'll see the consequence that sin brings as a punishment. Sin is a punishment. Because sin is something other than God. Sin is something less than God. But in the midst of pursuing sin, and whatever that is, whatever you find joy and gladness in outside of him, 
The temptation is to find your identity in that. But for the Christian, our identity can only ever be found in Him. Can only ever be found in God. So reliance on love leads to a reliance on Him. Look at the second factor of abiding. One of the ways we know that we can abide, we steer clear of sin, we lean on his love, but God has also given us his spirit. In the Christian's life, the Christian's life should be lived in submission to his spirit. It should be directed by his spirit. And so he gets into chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How? He has given us his spirit. God's spirit rests in you and his spirit is testifying to you of your belonging in him. And so then, it's the Christian's reliance upon his spirit and reliance upon the testimony of the spirit. And then he gets in verse 15, and the outward confession of our life that points to our resting in him. Verse 15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. See, it's our resting in the testimony of the Spirit. It's the outward confession of our life that's repeatedly pointing back to this idea. We don't walk in sin, that's not who we are. We rest in his love, this is where the embrace is. And in the midst of these things, we find our abode in him. And we abide, we rest, we wait in him. John finishes things out in chapter 5 and verse 20. Let's begin to close. I want you to consider this. He gets into chapter 5 and verse 20. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. In essence, John is pointing to the reality that Christ has actually come, that it was an actual historical event, and that on the basis of his coming and his sacrificial death, nothing should ever be the same again. So he writes and he says, We know that the Son of God has come, He came historically. And he's given us understanding. We recognize that he has worked in our minds to know him. That out of sight of God's working in our minds, we have an inability to know him. Why? So that we might know him who is true. In essence, God has worked in your mind so that you might know Jesus. So you might find the reality of your life met out not in what you desire to make of your life, but so that you might find your life met out in him who scripture writes about is true. Jesus spoke of himself. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. We find ourselves in Jesus who is true. Might know him him who is true, that we might be in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He says he is the true God in eternal life. Over the last few months, over the last few months, we look at the issue of sin. Sin absolutely wants to run your life. All the mistakes that you have made in the past, the mistakes that you will make today, cry out to be your identity. They cry out for them and them alone to be the focus of everything you do. All of your shortcomings, all of your purposed infractions, all the things that you've done. On the other hand, you have God's love. We feel unworthy, we feel overwhelmed, 
his love is lavished upon all. The degree to which we receive it and embrace it will put to death the sin and will allow us to find ourselves not resting in our ability to not currently be struggling with some sin, but we rest in his ability to have permanently, once and for all, answered sin and death. You see, First John and the testimony of it doesn't call us to be sinless, but it calls us to rest upon the promise of the sinless one. It doesn't call on us to be perfect, but it calls on us to rest in his perfection. It doesn't call on us to do anything but to know, to trust, and to believe. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and calls upon us to respond to that love. And in responding to that love, to rest and trust in it and in that to abide. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning I pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in us, many of us who have found ourselves hesitant to receive your love, to receive your forgiveness. And so, Father, I just pray that you would work in their hearts to convince them of your love, that you would work in their heart to cause them to forgive themselves so that they might be found effective for your kingdom, powerful for your name. And Father, I pray too for those who have yet to receive your forgiveness. And for whatever reason, they choose not to believe. So God, we pray in line with, with the gospel of John that your Holy Spirit will be working in their hearts to convict them concerning sin and righteousness. We entrust them to you, recognizing your love for them is infinitely greater than our own. Our desire is for their salvation. Your desire is for them to come to know you and to walk in truth. So God, we entrust them to you. And we pray that your Spirit would be leading us this morning as we respond to your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.